You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I offer this sermon this morning as a meditation on the good news of Jesus Christ, but also as a, a very personal confession. i got to say that one of the strangest things about preaching is the way in which the text seems to confront me as a preacher almost every week. It seems to be talking about the very thing uh, that is eluding me. And I think it, that's what I love about the gospel. That the, 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 there's nobody who holds the gospel who doesn't find themselves drawn into it. And that's been my experience. My confession this morning to you is that perhaps my biggest struggle, or one of my biggest struggles certainly, is that I have a very loud inner critic in my life. And it's so funny because here I am this week preaching on an inner critic, and I'm calling a friend and asking for a lifeline midweek because I'm just stuck. I just can't figure out how to write the sermon. I go, I just can't get it good enough. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think it's, George, maybe it's about you. Maybe it's about your inner critic. So I, I've told you before that I am a recovering perfectionist, Therefore, I'm going to preach an imperfect sermon this morning. It's part of my recovery program, okay? <laughs> but, you know, the, for me, I have very high standards. I, and I want to have high standards. I, I, I believe in excellence. And so I want to live my life pointed towards excellence. There's something deeply commendable and beautiful about excellence. And I, and I hope you see that in your life as well. The problem is my standards are so high that they have become for me a chronic burden in my life. Why? Because they're higher than I can attain. And every time I reach higher and can't achieve them, there's a voice inside of me. There's an audience in there that is speaking condemnation into my life. And I'll tell you what. Sometimes I do achieve my standard. And you know what happens when I do that? I raise it. Come on, you can do better than that. And so there's this constant negotiation inside of me. A negotiation over the question, who are you, George? Who do you really want to be? Who could you really be if only? And I'll tell you what, it's debilitating. It can almost be paralyzing at times. Now, we're looking at the story of the prodigal son over these three weeks, and we're looking at it through the lens of relationships. So you might ask the question, what does an inner critic have to do with relationships? And I want you to think about that question for a second, because the answer is almost everything. Almost everything. Because I have made my inner critic my closest friend. I consult him before I relate to you. Hmm, what would be the right way to say that? No, I better try it this way. No, better. I consult them before I relate to uh, my colleagues on the staff. I consult him before I relate to my children, before I relate to my spouse. I consult my inner critic before I relate to my God. It impacts everything. And think about the relationships in your life. Do you have an inner critic as well? Would it not impact the people around you? 
If you relate to your inner critic before you relate to them, I uh, want to say that this sermon actually is not for you, but it's for your inner critic. And if some of you are like me, is there anybody out there? I'm, I'm hoping you've invited your inner critic to church this morning, okay? My invitation would be to leave that uh, friend here. If you can get to your car before they find out that you've left, that would be a good thing. But look, there's somebody here who has stubbed their toe in business and it hurts and there's a voice in their head that says, you had it coming all along. There's somebody in here who is a teenager who is trying to run with the pack as they move from adolescence into adulthood and all they can hear is, you'll never be good enough to fit in with them. There's somebody in here who would really love to be married and who has someone special in their life, but who is trying to evaluate as as they look back on their past relationships. Do you think I could do it? And something says, you'd screw this one up too. There's someone in here who's been very successful in their life. But as they relate to co-workers and as they relate even to friends, they have learned to construct walls because if those people were to get close enough to you, you know what they'd know? That you're a fraud. Or so someone inside of you says. When I look at the prodigal son, I see a man who turns from home to try to go find something that he's not in himself, and I see myself. When I look at the father who embraces this son, I see one who holds out his arms to a distracted son and says, let me embrace you in my grace, and I find exactly what I need. So if you brought your inner critic to church this morning, there is no hope for them. But there is good news for you. Let's look at this story together. I want to open up to uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 14 through 24, on page 850 of our Pew Bible. And if you're able, why don't you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. Luke chapter 15, verses 14 through 24. This is the, the part that focuses on the younger son. And... What I want to show you here this morning are two things. I want to show you a new message, and I want to show you a new motivation. But first, God's word. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger." I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. 
He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, You who have sent the Son as our embrace, you who have sent the Spirit now to apply His grace to our lives, speak, for we need to feel your hug. In Jesus' name, amen. There's another message that interrupts my inner critic. And I I don't know if this guy's got an inner critic in his life or not, but I do know this. His message gets interrupted. I mean, he's got it all scripted out, doesn't he? Younger son of this great father has found himself as far away from his home as the narrator could describe. Jesus has him in a distant country, dying of hunger. And it's in this place that he comes up with a, a script. There's a kind of a voice. I don't think he's talking to anyone but himself. And, and you know the script, right? He, we read it. It's, Father, he says, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. That's the message. And you ask yourself, how did a son find himself in a place where he is so enslaved that his greatest hope is to become a hired hand? Work for pay. How did it happen? Jesus tells a story in such a way that we have so many more questions than he gives us answers for. But he hints at a kind of Pursuit of the self. Pursuit of an authentic self. It seems that that's why this man leaves his home in the first place. Perhaps throw off the yoke of the old man. He would see it as an adventure in freedom. Making bold and courageous moves that at every point will redefine his life for the better. And yet as Jesus tells the story, the narrator knows at every point he's not finding himself. He is actually losing himself because he's only been introduced to us as what he is, a son. There's no name. He's a son. That is his identity. But we will watch him cast off a son's father, cast off a son's inheritance, cast off a son's home, cast off a son's faith. Or what else would yearning for the food of a pig mean to a good Jewish young man? And ultimately cast off the life of a son 
as he enters into what some described as bereft, being bereft of being. And it's here that there is this voice that's arising in him, desperate, dying, eager just to eat. He starts speaking to himself, and he comes up with this message. Um, Father, treat me like one of your hired hands. And, you know, it's actually a very rational plan, the strategy of return. It's a good script for him. Because, as we talked about last week, there's no way that he can return to this village with any kind of dignity. He may lose his life should he tries to do so. But in desperation, he's got one final appeal to his father. He has this moment of clarity when he, quote, comes to himself. See, that's another hint that his pursuit is an adventure towards the self. But he comes to himself in relationship to his father just for a moment. And it's enough for him to head back. But he can't have any other message, could he, in his head at this point? Right? Because he has actually metaphorically, figuratively killed his father. His father will say, this son of mine was dead. And so he has no father. There's a voice in him that would tell him so. You have no father. You have no inheritance. You have no home. You have no identity. It's kind of the cruelty of the distant country. And with all of that swirling through his head, abused and broken, he wanders back through the wilderness of life towards this home. And then there is the surprise, the great surprise of this text, which is the great surprise of the gospel. And that surprise is that from a distance, he realizes, though he has turned his back on his father, his father apparently has never turned his back on this son. And who knows how long he's been gone. What's more, he finds this father hitching up his robe and running in absolute humiliation and indignity towards him, arms outstretched to embrace him. His father folds him. We see in verse 20. While he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Kata phileo. Love against probably repeatedly embracing his neck with affection. And what do we hear of the inner script? Well, we hear this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. True so far. And then what do we hear? He goes on, right? No. He's got nothing more to say. What about the other half of the script? Treat me like one of your hired servants. What about the petition to be a slave at least and eat? Well, some people think that the father interrupts him. As the father turns to his actual slaves and says, go get a robe. But grammatically, actually, there's no reason to believe that. And Ken Bailey tells us he thinks it's as likely or more that the son in this embrace has discovered he no longer needs the rest of the script. It's been muted by grace. Savor the silence. It is a holy, sacred moment because there is in the Father's embrace no accusation, no negotiation, no judgment or condemnation, just silence. 
You are my son. There's no need for that voice anymore. This gives me great hope. I mentioned to you last week a, a Scottish minister named Thomas Smale who writes a book called The Forgotten Father. And here's what he says about inner voices. Smale writes, To be a Christian is to believe that it is the Father who defines our identity. And it is to be believed, the Father, against all inner and outer accusations to the contrary when he says, This is my Son. To know that is not to skulk in the back pew. It's to come forward with confidence to receive the inheritance. Ernest Hemingway begins one of his short stories uh, with a rather long sentence, which is not characteristic. He says this, Madrid is full of boys named Paco, which is the diminutive of the name Francisco. And there is a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of El Liberal, which said, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. And how a squadron of Guardia Civil, Civil Guard, had to be called out to disperse the 800 young men who answered the advertisements. And we laugh, not only because, <laughs> could there really be 800 Pacos in Madrid? Not only because if there are that many that so crowd the Hotel Montana that the civil police have to be dispatched in order to name Paco, how many men are wandering the lonely and alienated streets of Madrid, separated from a father, living in uh, loss and regret. But I smile and invite you to smile when we imagine that among all of the crowds, these generic Pacos, there is one who that night will find his true identity. There is one who will find that he's not just Paco, he's not just Francisco, but as he sits in the dimly lit corner of the cafe, Hotel Montana will look across a candle and see a face that says to him, you are my son, Paco. All is forgiven. This gives him a new inner script. This resolves the tension of his quest for identity in the, in the prodigal's story. And it is what we need in order to stop listening to anything that says we are anything other than beloved children of God, daughters and sons. It's a new message. It's a different message. The other thing we get uh, as we study this uh, uh, story and receive its grace, is a new motivation. You see, the Father's embrace allows us not just to stop listening, but not just to know who we are, but to become who we really are. And, and that's motivation. Let me tell you why uh, I hesitate to um, give up my friendship with my inner critic. It's because I sense that that person is in my life to be helpful. Because I sense that now it's misguided, but my opinion is that this inner critic is there really to advance my career, 
to improve my relationships, to make me a better athlete, right? to spur me on to more and to better and to good. But Jesus is telling us it will only deprive you of who you are because it wants to make you someone that you're not. Jesus is inviting us to lean back into grace and discover in that position of repose a whole new motivation that is far more compelling than the one that we feel under the switch of our pestering inner audience. So we see this motivation in um, two forms of, what's, of repentance. Repentance is about turning around, turning your life around. And theologians talk about two different kinds of repentance. One is called legal repentance, and the other is called evangelical repentance. Repentance of the law or repentance of the gospel. And uh, legal repentance is the tool of my critic. It says, look at these standards, George. You can climb another notch. or Look how you slipped back, George. That's not what I want for you now. Come on, you can do better. Keep climbing up the ladder. That's legal repentance. There's a standard, there are rules, and uh, you're goaded to climb. That's one way of motivating your life. But evangelical Repentance begins with the truth of the gospel. You are my son. All is forgiven. I couldn't love you anymore, no matter what you did. I couldn't love you any less than I love you right now today. And I have set you free from all slavery. That is uh, evangelical repentance. And it gives us a whole new motivation. To see which one you believe, let me ask you a question. Here's a theological quiz. I bet you didn't expect this this morning. Whoa, wait a second. Theological quiz. What did you say? Um, (laughs) Repentance, turning around, and forgiveness. Which one comes first? Do you think that repentance comes before forgiveness? Or do you think that uh, forgiveness comes before repentance? Your answer to that tells you everything you need to know about your inner critic. A lot of us get this story wrong, the story of the prodigal son. A lot of us think that it's a story of legal repentance. We think it's about confession. Here's this young man who made some bad choices, and he ends up in a bad place, and he says to myself, you know, if I come clean and I go back to my father with a good confession and solid repentance, I bet he'll take me back in. I bet he'll forgive me. See, that's repentance first and then forgiveness. Is that the way the story goes? No way! That's not the parable of the prodigal son. That's your inner critic's good news. The good news that Jesus gives us is, goes like this. Here's a, a son who only comes home because the pig food is bad and he's dying. And he knows there's better slop at home. And he develops this inner routine that he hopes will snow his, fa- his father and then he can scam him yet one more time. And if the father were smart, he would see it from a million miles away. And apparently he's got good eyesight because he sees this boy coming, but apparently really bad judgment because before the boy has a chance to give him his spiel, he's on the run already. He's going towards him to embrace him. He says, I don't care what you have to say. I don't care what you've done or promised not to do anymore. I just want you to know you're my son. And that's all that matters. Can you imagine this man's future from here on in? He's got a whole new motivation. 
as he lives with his father, with this father in his home. Now, this is a story about unconditional love. Miroslav Volf, the Yale theologian, says this about this parable. He says, no confession was necessary for the embrace to take place for the simple reason that the relationship did not rest on moral performance and therefore could not be destroyed by immoral acts. This is not the the story of our heavenly employer. This is the story of our heavenly father. It's about a relationship. And he does not turn his back on his relationship with you, no matter where you go or what you do. And it's in that relationship that you find incredible motivation. Now, someone's troubled, and they're going to say, hey, you, you, you can't take judgment off the table. I mean, if, if you take judgment off the table, then what will motivate people to, to be good? If you just tell people that they're already saved, then they'll just go off and do whatever they want to please. Really? Are you willing to say that your greatest motivation in life for good is fear? No, of course not. Fear doesn't motivate us. Fear doesn't motivate us at all. When someone's beating up on me, I want to run the other direction, not forward. It's grace that truly motivates us. John Calvin makes this point when he says, A man or woman cannot apply himself seriously to repentance without knowing himself to belong to God. See, he's saying, you can't even begin to repent until you know who you are in God's grace. But no one is truly persuaded that he belongs to God unless he has first recognized God's grace. And no one will gird himself willingly to observe the law, but him who will be persuaded that God is pleased by his obedience. See, he's saying, otherwise, what's the point? If you could never please God, you're not going to be motivated to try to do what he says is life-giving to you. You're just going to run the other way. That is motivation in the distant country. Not motivation from the home. You can see the difference between the two characters in Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams and Eric Little. Harold Abrams says, I got four feet and ten seconds to justify my existence. What's motivating him? Fear. He sees his goal at the end of that 100-yard track. And if he can get there in less than 10 seconds, he knows who he is. Otherwise, bereft of being. Now, Eric Little's totally different. What does Eric Little say? Well, he's a, you know, one of the things that, that uh, his sister says about Eric Little that was true about the movie is he is a really awkward runner. You know, it's, it's not pretty at all. You know, and we see this in the movie, kind of his hands are flailing all over the place. But you know what? He knows who he is before he begins the race. He discovers his identity in the starting blocks. He says, the reason I run is because I run to feel God's pleasure. I know who I am. I know how he's made me. And I delight in experiencing that reality in my life. And so I run. That's powerful motivation. That's new motivation for us. That's the motivation of a loving father. So we get a new script. You are forgiven. And we get a new motivation. Become who you already are, my daughter, my son. Let me ask you a couple questions. What difference do you want this embrace, the embrace of your father, 
to have in your relationships. Remember last week I asked you to think about a circle of close relationships, maybe some that are a little bit strained even. How do you want this embrace to be reflected in those relationships? As I've been asking myself that question, I've been thinking about what it must have looked like to see this guy relating to people in the distant country versus in the home. Right? If you were his friend in either of those places, how, how would it be different? I mean, in the, in the home, it's interesting what Jesus says is he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Probably better translation is he attached himself to a citizen of that country. And we ought to think really more about Ruth than someone who's got a job. Ruth out in the field's gleaning. It's not really gainful employment. It's just I'm, I'm trying to pick up a little bit. It's more like a, a, someone in a New York City traffic jam with a windshield wiper, you know, cleaning your windshield, hoping that you flip a quarter out the window, right? He's attached himself to someone. He's glommed on. Is that a healthy a relationship style? You ever had someone do that for you? You ever been in a place where you felt you had to do that to somebody else? See, the distant country has relationships that are characterized by scarcity and fear and despair. That's what goes on there. But after the embrace, on the other side, what's going on in the home? Man, they're not buying and selling and negotiating and trading. They're feasting on a fatted calf. They're singing. They're dancing. And relationships in that context are characterized by abundance and security and hope. How about you? Let me offer a couple suggestions. First, only know who you are through the grace of Jesus Christ. Only know who you are through the grace of Jesus Christ. Second, next time your inner critic uh, gives you a call, when you see that on your caller ID... Don't take the call. All right? Just put it back in your pocket. And, and you just tell that person, uh, you're busy exploring and discovering all the implications of God's grace for your life. You just don't have time for the inner critic. And then thirdly, I want you to have something in your life that reminds you of who you are. You, you and I are going to forget. We may know right now, crystal clear, but... Come a day or two, it's going to wear off, and we're going to need a reminder. Same thing was true of this son. He needed no help in the embrace of his father's arms, but his father knows that time will wear and voices will come back, and so he gives him symbols. There is a robe which signifies honor, the finest robe. There is a ring, probably a signet ring, to signify the authority of this family. Like an open line of credit, how this must have galled the elder brother. We'll talk about him next week. And then <clears throat> there are sandals, which you would not have given to a slave. Sign of privilege. Honor, authority, privilege. This is who you are. This is your inheritance as a daughter of God, as a son of God. Don't forget that. So you need some symbols in your life as well. And it, it might be just a, a little sign on your desk that says Paco. It might be a scripture verse that you put on a little card and you put it on your dashboard. But I'll tell you what the best reminder is. It's a friend. It's someone with flesh and blood who will look into your face and remind you of the grace of Jesus Christ when you need it most. Who will come and wrap their arms around you as a proxy for the Father, empowered by the Spirit to help you really believe the truth of the good news for you. That's what I need. And I have so many in my life. That's why I'm here. And you need that too. And, by the way, you can be that for somebody else. What a great privilege that is.
I want to close with a story about a relationship that's just that kind of relationship. I don't know if you saw the movie The King's Speech. If you didn't, I'm about to ruin it for you. But I, I, no, I, I'm hoping most of you have seen it. But if you haven't, you really do have to go see this movie. It's about a special relationship. The time that Adolf Hitler is rising to power on the continent, he's using his voice, a profound communicator, to stir up great evil and mischief in the distant country. And there is across the channel a man who will prove to be heir to the throne of England. Bertie is his name. As his elder brother will show himself incompetent, Bertie would be the king, George VI, except he's lost his sense of who he is. See, he's lost his voice. Apparently, Bertie has grown up in the distant country. Because he has a father who hasn't been very warm to him. He has a brother who has teased him. He lost a younger brother to death. He has a nanny who favors his elder brother. He's actually left-handed, but has had to train himself to be who he's not by working with his right hand. His legs don't work right, and he's had painful splints. There's so much pain in his life, that's all he can hear ringing in his ears. And the movie begins with a painful experience in which he is addressing the whole British Empire and on radio. And though he can't physically hear the voices, what I know he's hearing is that inner audience, the whole of the British Empire upon which the sun never sets, coming back at him saying, you are nobody. You have no right to stand in that place. You have nothing to say to us. And he stutters his way through a horrible speech. But he's befriended by a man named Lionel. And Lionel, turns out, does not have training in elocution. But what he does have is a willingness to be a friend and to so love Birdie that the truth about Bertie can break through all of these inner critics. So that my favorite moment in the movie, and maybe yours as well, is that great speech that he has to give. There's a long, dramatic walk down a hallway, and he moves it into a, a soundproof booth, this time very, very small and intimate. And it's really just about two men in the room together, f- having forgotten that there is a microphone between the two of them. A birdie speaks every word of his speech, not to the empire, but to his friend, Lionel, who has shown him grace. And in the security of that face, his elocution is flawless. That's the hope for you and me. As we look into the face of Jesus Christ and do whatever we do and relate in every way that we relate to him primarily and just let the world overhear we will discover who we are and know great freedom. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how amazingly rich your plan for this creation has proved to be. That you are a loving Father, that you have offered a Son to take on our humanity, to provide for yourself the obedience that is a part of your holy nature. Where we have failed, you have succeeded on our behalf, and then you have sent out your Holy Spirit to apply that gospel truth to our lives in such a way that grace sets us free and we become who we were meant to be. 
Give us that freedom, we pray. Help us to be the kind of people who can give others that same freedom. Let us be a community of grace that gives hope to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.